0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing yesterday's New South Wales state election, including the re-election of the Berejiklian government and the increase in support for minor parties. My guest today is Osman Chu. Oz is Secretary of the New South Wales Fabians and Editor of the Labour Left Magazine Challenge. Hello, Oz.
1: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on.
0: So here's where we stand right now. The coalition has been re-elected, It's not yet clear if they have won a majority or if they will fall just short and need to work with the Shooters or some rural independents to form a stable working majority. The Nationals have lost Barwon and Murray to the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers and look likely to lose Lismore to either Labor or the Greens. Labor appears likely to gain the seat of Coogee but has no other gains so far. The Nationals have a slight lead in Upper Hunter and the Liberals have an even slighter lead in East Hills. Uh, The Nationals are also in the lead ahead of an independent in Dubbo. It is also unclear if independents can win in Wollandili or Coffs Harbour. We're going to have to wait to see on those ones. The government will need to win in three of these seven seats to win a majority, which makes them the favourites to win a majority, but it's not guaranteed. Oz, why do you think we saw practically no movement from the coalition to Labor at this election?
1: It's hard to say at this stage. Um, I think one of the reasons may be that there hasn't been a lot of engagement with the state election. Um, I mean, probably different to previous state elections. um, There really wasn't a sense of any energy. Um, It feels like a lot of politics has been overshadowed by the federal election. Um, So really, I think people have not even really turned their mind to the state election since, until probably the last week or two. I think that's the sense I'm getting. Probably one of the other factors might be approaches of both the parties, because there hasn't really been much of a focus on state politics, Um, it's really been a case where Labor's offer has mostly been a small target offer. While there have been some good policies on, you know, industrial relations, climate change, you know, nurse-to-patient ratios, really a lot of the policies haven't really cut through. Um, So there's been a focus on um, the stadiums issue, but it feels like there wasn't really a response to some of the big challenges in Sydney, um, so housing, for example, transport, and I think that kind of reflects the sort of difference between the vote within Sydney and the vote outside of Sydney.
0: It's interesting because I think there is a theme that the the Labor campaign, there was a bunch of things where they were saying what they weren't going to do rather than what they were going to do. Um, and, I mean, stadiums was one of those, but also their attitude to a number of the transport projects that the government is doing uh things that you know their attitude has been oh look how they they haven't finished this project you know look at how devonshire street and surrey hills is a mess because of the light rail or things like that and i do wonder if that had a bit of it there were some people who were like no we we buy the liberal party's argument that this its a construction site and things will be better once it's finished and it it um I don't think it really worked for them in terms of like having an inspirational or exciting message if a lot of what they were saying was you can't trust these Liberals to finish this thing they're building or whatever, you know, and particularly when there's a bit of a reputation for the last Labor government of being around for a long time and not doing very much in terms of infrastructure. I think like even if there were legitimate criticisms, I think it came across as, um, as, uh, well, you know, this is the approach that led to not very much getting built in the past that, you know, if you're a little bit disturbed by a bit of traffic in Kensington or a bit of uh, disruption on George Street or whatever.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think I think the other challenge for Labor as well was beyond just the policies, um, even if you disagree with the coalition, they have put forward a way of how they plan to fund a lot of these new infrastructure projects such as, you know, West Connects, you know, the city metro, even the stadiums, it was through the privatization, it was through asset recycling. And I guess that is one of the big challenges for labour going into the future. Um, How can it put forward credible policies on housing, infrastructure, transport, if it really can't articulate, you know, how it will fund these projects? I mean, cancelling other projects really and redirecting the money really does not seem credible at this stage.
0: So one of the things we also saw was that the, the Labor Party barely made any progress. Like it looks like maybe they've gained one seat. You know, upper end they might they might end up gaining three. Um, but we actually saw a bit of a surge in support for the minor parties and the independents. So the uh, the Greens consolidated their hold on their three seats. Uh, Lismore is still not very clear, but it seems like there has been a swing uh, towards the Greens and away from the Nationals in Lismore. Whether it's enough to get them elected, or whether Labor Labor gets ahead, we don't know. But there's you know the Greens are in that position. Meanwhile, the Shooters and Fishers and Farmers, who had basically never run in a lower house seat before the last election, um, get three people elected uh, and are in quite a strong position. And we've also seen uh, an independent running pretty close in Dubbo, and Wallandilly is a bit of an unknown. So we have. This kind of broader group of minor parties doing well, and um, Michael Daly mentioned that in his speech last night, um, being concerned about what this says about the two-party system, which I thought was an interesting line. Um, it felt a bit like trying to tar the coalition with the kind of stain of defeat that was already on Labor. But um, what, do you, what do you think? What do you think about what's going on there in the lower house about these these are uh, these crossbenchers strengthening their position?
1: I think it's probably a few different things. I think, firstly, it's clear that while there has been dissatisfaction with the government, Labor hasn't been the beneficiary of us. Um, so if you think about it, um, the be wins for the shooters um, were west of the Great Dividing Ranges. and mm. you know Labor Seats where
0: Labor doesn't have a chance, yeah.
1: Well, even, I mean, historically, if you think about a seat like Barwin based around Broken Hill, which was traditionally a very strong Labor seat, um, you know, it didn't come near um, getting into second place. The other aspect is it almost seems like a trend across the country where you have the regionalization of contests. So, you know, the North Coast being its own contest, the central the central west and western New South Wales being its own contest, and even outside of New South Wales, if you think about North Queensland turning into like a four way race, or so it seems like there and you know, the inner city um, about in Sydney and Melbourne and you know, potentially in the future a place like Brisbane turning into a, another freeway kind of contest. The, the question is whether or not this trend will continue where you have the fragmentation of the party system. So we won't have a standard two-party system across the country but different systems based in different regions. Uh,
0: so the Greens have got three MPs. Uh, they've all been re-elected. They've all strengthened their hold despite a lot of chatter that that wouldn't happen in Ballina and Balmain. What does that say about the future of, of these kinds of contests? That it seems like Labor Labour didn't put a huge amount of effort into those seats, but it seems like there was a little bit of a last minute push in Balmain and it didn't it didn't go anywhere. Like are these just seats Labor gives up on? Or I mean, maybe there's there's a different electoral circumstance where they'd do better?
1: Well, I mean, I guess I guess the question is whether it'll be different based on whether the seat is open or if there's an incumbent. So clearly, in the case of the three seats, the Greens have won. They had incumbent MPs. Um, Lismore it was a case where there wasn't an incumbent MP from Labor or the Greens. Um, so it will be interesting to see, you know, if Labor does win Lismore and you know, Janelle Safin you know, decides to go for the seat multiple times, whether or not that vote will consolidate behind her. So whether or not there is a, you know, a broad Labor Green vote. But it just goes behind whoever might be the progressive incumbents. It
0: does make you wonder if uh, if these people stay there for a long time? They're all relatively young. They could they could hold on to those seats for quite a, quite a while. Yeah. So then we have the upper house. So uh, in the upper house, we've got relatively early stage of the count. Um, unfortunately, the Electoral Commission has decided not to count all of the parties on election night, and apparently, we're going to have to wait until Wednesday to find out about the others. But well, last night it was about 13%, but apparently it's more like 14% now of the votes that have any kind of marking on them have been put in this others pile. Now that could include below the lines. It would include um, non-blank informal votes, uh, but it does also include all the other minor party votes. And so if you assume maybe 2 or 3% of that is below the line, that could be 10% of the vote with these other parties we don't know. Um, but we do know Labor has gained at least one seat uh, the coalition at the moment has only held seven, which is a loss of four. Uh, probably, you know, that, that may well go up to eight, but the coalition has definitely weakened their position. The Greens um, at the moment look like they'll win two seats and One Nation and the Shooters will win one each, uh, while Fred Nile's party, the Christian Democrats, are uh, looking touch and go about whether... They can retain their one seat, uh, which is interesting because his party has held a seat at every election since 1981. We then have this situation. We don't know where that other 14% is. We don't know if that's a vote for David Lionhelm or Jeremy Buckingham or Keep Sydney Open or whoever. But we definitely know that the coalition is going to have a much more difficult time passing legislation in the the next upper house.
1: It'll really depend on what the... um ultimate outcome of the upper house will be. Um, So I think it's, as you said, it's really too early to tell um, what the result will be. It will, I think, definitely be an interesting combination. Um, I mean, in the previous upper house iterations, the government has only had to rely on, you know, a combination of the CDP and shooters or, you know, either both of them or one of them to pass legislation so it'll be interesting to see what will happen if the coalition has to rely on three or more parties to you know pass legislation and what the trade-offs will be
0: yeah and i guess uh the other thing that's interesting is they haven't really needed the shooters in the last four years and we've seen the coalition and the shooters move apart but i mean if we're in a situation where the shooters could provide stable a stable majority in the lower house and um Although I think it's more likely the coalition will get a majority, but if if they fall short, the Shooters seem like a good a good bet to solidify their position.
1: So that might cause tensions within the the coalition itself, as, as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So. so, like, does are the Shooters able? I I don't see any fundamental reason why the Shooters can't have a more cooperative relationship. But they have the, the form of the party has changed quite substantially since the last election.
1: Yeah, especially winning these lower house seats in previously national strongholds. And also effectively broadening their base beyond being a party of shooting clubs into a range of other, almost like a catch-all of regional interests.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the anti-nationals. We're going to have to wait quite a while for the upper house. We're probably going to have to wait three weeks. We're not even really going to have a good sense of how the other parties are doing until the middle of the week, uh, which is a bit of a concern and maybe a topic for another day about what is going on with the New South Wales Electoral Commission that's led to some... um, Counting issues uh shout out to the polling booth in Strathfield where the uh, a liberal party um booth worker turned up for a day of work and was put on a put on a desk uh, handing out ballot papers to voters for five hours uh that that's that's gonna be an interesting one to to see what happens there but um we're gonna have to wait a while to find out about that. The coalition at a state level, they have done plenty of conservative things, maybe more economically conservative than socially conservative, uh, like a lot of privatisations and a lot of changes to, you know, things like adoption reform and housing and things like that, selling off of housing, all those kind of things. Um, So it would be wrong to describe them as like a left-wing liberal government. They're definitely not. But they've they've given off a a tone of... um, it feels like a very different tone to the federal Liberals. You know, the, I'm willing to be much more moderate, certainly appear more moderate. Certainly that's the case with Gladys Berejiklian, but I also think that was the case with her predecessors. Um, and, you know, a lot of the focus has been on things like constructing public transport and things like that. Do you, How real do you feel like that is? And do you think that's, that's something where um, that has played into, how this election went, as opposed to, you know, we all still assume that the Scott Morrison won't have such a good result in two months.
1: Yeah, I think the reality is that, you know, for all state parties, whether Liberal, Labor, Green, um, the state branches of parties are very different to the federal entity um, just because of the sort of different dynamics. So if you think about the Liberals in New South Wales, they are controlled by the moderate faction, unlike, um, you know, state branches elsewhere. Um but I also think it just partially comes down to electoral reasons as well. Um, so in New South Wales, the Liberals could not get away with coming off as you know a quite a party that's opposed to multiculturalism or can, like ha- having issues with it and winning the election. Um, I think we saw that in the in the 90s. Um, that really the liberals suffered in New South Wales through that association, and pretty much since for the last decade, the liberals have actually been doing quite a job on you know building relations with different culturally diverse communities, um, and explicitly going out of their way to you know detoxify the sense of how they were you know d- a decade or two ago.
0: And that's I mean, that certainly worked in their benef- for their benefit when um, the the tape came out with Michael Daly talking about Asian immigration, uh, you know the Liberal Party was in a position to take advantage of that, and I think we saw. I mean, <clears throat> there's other trends going on, but I do think it's interesting that there's this string of South Southern Sydney electorates where either the Liberal incumbents held on against what what might have been the expectations, but also a seat like Cogro where there was a swing against against the Labor MP. That um, it you know the liberals were credible enough that they were able to kind of run that case against Labor um, on race, which I think is interesting because we've usually seen race problem like issues with being seen as intolerant to Asian immigration being a problem for the Liberal Party, but we saw it as a problem for Labor here.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely, and I, I think there's probably a few elements to that. So obviously, this shift in migration since the nineties to, you know, more skilled immigration. So I think there is a sort of socioeconomic class element to us. Um, I mean, you see those seats that Labor historically held that are quite multicultural. So, you know, around say like Hurstville, um, just as an example, that Labor held for, you know, a very long time um, and that shifted significantly towards a coalition.
0: So, Oz, when we were talking before this podcast, you also mentioned uh, how the dynamics of this election would have been different uh, if the voting system was compulsory preferential. Um, do, you want to, do you want to elaborate on that a bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's probably a few examples where if you think about some of the seats outside of Sydney, um, if there was compulsory preferential, it may have been a situation where the coalition may not have won the seat. So if you think of something like Wallandilly, where I think Nathaniel Smith got about 30, I could be wrong, about 38% or around the 40% mark. Um, but given optional preferential voting, he looks likely to win the seat. Um, similarly, Upper Hunter, where the Nationals seem to be polling in the mid-30s um, and the combination of Labor and the Shooters and Fishers is around 50% of the vote.
0: I mean, another example would be Lismore, where the Nationals still have a chance but... Probably wouldn't have a chance if it was compulsory preferential.
1: Yeah, and Dubbo as well. Optional preferential voting might save the coalition from a minority government.
0: So while New South Wales has this uh, increasingly complex multi-party system, optional preferential voting can sometimes save the major party because they're more likely to be the candidate leading and um, facing a challenge from behind them. So while while there are a lot of these seats where it's between the coal between a major party and a and a minor party or an independent ipv might actually um, reduce the impact in terms of the seat
1: count so it'd be interesting to see if their parties shift their views on you know optional preferential voting um, so for example you know queensland having gone back from optional preferential voting to compulsory preferential voting recently
0: so what do you what do you think is the way forward for labor now they uh, they've their last two labor leaders have been chosen basically in a panic right before the election when the previous leader was forced to step down um, it doesn't sound like Michael Daly is going to get a, a clean bill of health for the next four years to continue leading the way Luke Foley did last time uh, like what where do you think they go from here?
1: It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks. Um, So one thing that will be different, because within Labor, the leadership automatically becomes um, open after an election. So if there is a challenge to Michael Daly as leader, it will be a direct election model. So similar to how Bill Shorten was elected, a model where 50% of the vote comes from the caucus and 50% comes from the rank and file. So in the previous two examples where Luke Foley became leader and Michael Daly became leader... Um, because it was within six months of the state election Um, the provision is that if that is within six months it will be a caucus only vote so that might be a very different dynamic so candidates who may not necessarily have a majority of the caucus but a substantial minority may feel they should run because they think they might have a shot of winning over the rank and file um I guess given how close the federal election is, there may be pressure to not do that.
0: They can't wait two months. They can't postpone the leadership, but like they can't just say, we will spill it, but we'll wait until after the state, the federal election.
1: It will be the first time that this direct election model has been applied at a state level. So it will be interesting to see what happens.
0: So it sounds like Chris Minns is definitely talking about running. Are there other, other people you see as being contenders?
1: Chris Minns is the obvious one. Other people talk about Jodie McKay, um, you know, other names that have been flagged.
0: Both people whose seats weren't called until quite late last night.
1: Yeah, and I, that in itself causes issues um, that we've seen when during election campaigns where a leader is in a marginal seat, they have effectively boxed in trying to defend their own seats. I guess it's, it's early days, so it's hard to know just yes. But they are definitely the two people who um, people talk about. Yeah, I, I think it, one thing that was interesting is in within Sydney, there was quite uneven swings. Um, so, for example, Labor actually did get a bunch of swings towards it, but it was really in the wrong places. So, you know, when you had swings towards Labor in places like Prospect, Rockdale, you know, Campbelltown, um, not in those marginal seats um, that Labor needed to win. It'll probably take a lot of delving into, but there was, there are some interesting results looking at, that are worth looking into, um, and also that distinction between, you know, what the vote pre-poll votes were versus election day votes. Um, you know, suggestions that it might mean different results for a seat like East Hills, um, but it would be also be interesting to see, you know, the impact in seats like Ride, um, Stratfield, Cogra, Oatley, just to see how much of an impact um, Daly's comments made.
0: I've been trying to do some work this morning before this podcast about analysing the swings and analysing the results. And one of the things that's really complicated is a lot of the pre-poll hasn't come in yet. Most of the pre-poll, it seems, at first glance, haven't got the full picture yet. And we know that the pre-poll coming in made a big difference in Wentworth and Victoria. So I, I look at that and I'm like, we're just going to have to wait a little while before we get the full picture. But it definitely appears that... Um, like I'm looking at the list of seats that swung hardest to Labor. Uh, yeah, and you have Campbelltown, you have Newcastle, you have Camden. On the other hand, you then have a bunch of seats that swung in the opposite direction. You know, you you had uh, this is two-party pre- preferred swings to the to the Nats in a bunch of seats. Monero swung very hard to the Nationals.
1: And Tweed as well.
0: Yeah, Tweed. So there was a couple of these seats that were very marginal and they just, they went completely in the opposite direction. So, um, I mean, that is another example of, you know, on a previous podcast I talked with my guests about um, the different kinds of national seats and you have these kind of coastal seats and these inland seats and maybe Monero is in its own kind of category being in Queanbeyan. Um, but I'm seeing a bit of a trend here that maybe the, um, you know, they're losing ground in Western New South Wales but they're they're building up their support in a place like Tweed or a place like Monero. I might just quickly run through a couple of these seats that are still in play. So I'm going to start with Dilly. We don't have a preference count in Wollandili. Uh As you said, the Liberal, Nathaniel Smith, is on about 38.5%. And in second place is Judy Hannon, the Independent, on 21.4%. But you've also got like 11% with One Nation, 14% with Labor, 6% with the Shooters. She has to do pretty well on preferences to win, but that's going to be one to watch. So hopefully we'll get a new two candidate preferred count there. Soon the Electoral Commission has taken down the Liberal Labor count. Then we have East Hills where currently the Liberal is up with 52.4%, but the ABC model is projecting that's going to drop with the further votes that are yet to be counted. And we're in a similar position in Upper Hunter where currently the Nationals' Michael Johnson is on 52.4%, but the ABC projection for Upper Hunter has that lead dropping down to 1.4%. And the other seat, which is a Labor-Liberal contest still in play, is Coogee, where um, the ABC is projecting that Labor will win with 51.9%. It's a little bit more than what they're currently on. They're on about 514 at the moment, uh, and that would be a swing of about 4.8%. So quite possibly the only Labor gain, but a particularly unique, unique seat that's very different to a lot of the other marginals. Well, the other one that is particularly interesting is Lismore. So Lismore, Labor has gained ground on the Greens compared to where it looked last night. Um, so at the moment, Janelle Saffin is on 25.7%, while the Greens' Sue Higginson is 24.7%. There's quite a lot of preferences yet to distribute, including some from the Conservatives and Sustainable Australia animal justice, and an independent. You'd expect the Greens to do a little bit better on those preferences, but whether it's enough, we don't know, and we probably won't know for another week. And then finally we have Dubbo, where the independent uh, Matthew Dickerson is on 28.5%, and uh, he is trailing the Nationals candidate, uh, Dougal Saunders, who's on 35.7%, And on a two-candidate preferred basis, Dougal Saunders is leading with 50.6%. So we don't really have a projection for that seat, but that that seat is very close. Do you have any thoughts about any of those, Oz?
1: Look, I think it'll be a few more days yet until we know exactly what's going to happen and whether or not the coalition will be um, a majority or minority government. I think that's that's the only thing we can be sure of right now. It was just interesting in the lead-up to the election, there was a lot of talk about the New South Wales election being a climate change election. Um, you know, the fact that it was, I think polling had listed as, you know, one of the major concerns for the public, yet it seems not to have translated into actual votes. Um, so I guess the question is whether or not any of the parties really had an offer that cut through or at the end of the day, even though people said it was a concern, they didn't really vote on it. Um, I just think that's something interesting to reflect on.
0: So that's about it for this episode of The Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Oz, for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Be sure to check out The Tally Room as results continue to flow in over the next few weeks. And uh, there'll be a number of blog posts coming up over the next couple of days. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBrow for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.